Got it. Welcome to The Bind Time with Melanie Baldock. Uh, today's guest, I have Aaron Potts from Potts Wine in California. Welcome, Aaron. It's great to be here. I'm so happy you're here. It looks yeah. sunny there in California. Uh, it's absolutely beautiful here. It's been beautiful for the last week. You know, the vine's grown about uh, 10 centimeters in the week. It's crazy. I'm sure. I'm sure you're not having all of the spring rain that we're having here in Maine. No, we got enough enough rain this winter. We're ready for some Good. sunshine. And this has been really really the first real week of of spring. And no, uh, too, a few weeks ago. The birds are getting frisky and the kids are getting frisky and That's it's it. all spring popping. Spring fever. I love it. And you had some snow a couple of weeks ago? Well, end of February we had eight inches of snow at our vineyard, so yeah, a little bit of snow. That's kind of unheard of for us. We get we get a tiny bit of snow almost every year, but it's usually not more than an inch and doesn't stick in, in through the day. And it was a good solid week. It was up there pretty deep. Sure. And, uh, and, and so how does that affect the vines for anyone who doesn't know? Well, they're dormant at that stage in their life. Okay. So they're just kind of in hibernation waiting for waiting for the soil temperature to reach 10 degrees centigrade when they will come out again and break bud. So it doesn't affect the rootstock in any way? It's kind of a good thing. It really, it kills off a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, issues that uh, plague vines and allows them to reset uh, themselves. So they're ready to grow again. It's a, it's a positive thing. I mean, anytime you can get a, a good freeze, not like a, killing freeze you know if they go uh if they get very cold you can kill the kill the vine but the vine. that's that's what happens in maine so in maine yeah. a little bit too it's a little bit too cold so we actually or i don't but there's a lot of people in maine who actually produce minnesota hybrids mm-hmm. uh, frontenac is one of them that grows very well here yeah. uh and french american hybrids are grown here but there are some uh winemakers up the coast mid-coast maine they're doing some experimenting with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and they're taking bricks and putting it around the stock, if that makes sense, or around the vines, um, the base of the vines to insulate the ground underneath. And, yeah, and, and they, they have plantings in China where they b- bury the vines entire entire oh, wow. winter to protect them from, from the cold. It's amazing. Have you been to China? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I went there in 2014. One of the uh, one of the vineyards that I was working with bought was bought by a Chinese group, and uh, they sent me out there. Okay, so we're going to go back because I want everybody to know your story because it's really amazing. So tell me your wine story where it started, if you will. Uh, well, it started in a bistro called uh, Le Précope in uh, in Paris, very famous bistro, and the first time I was ever in France. My parents took me, I was nine years old. We go to this bistro and I order a glass of milk and the waiter looks at me and says, milk is for babies and uh, brings out a glass of wine. And I mean, to this day, I, I'm pretty sure it was a Beaujolais okay. and it was, it was horrible. <laughs> but what I realized was I was nine years old and I wanted to be an adult. You know, like every nine-year-old, you're just mm-hmm. desperate to be an adult. And that was my ticket to adultdom was this beverage. And then my parents visited a lot of, took us to visit a lot of vineyards 
uh, on that trip as well. And I remember noticing that there were sort of three things that all of these uh, vineyards had that I wanted to have in my working life. And that was they worked outside. They all had a dog. You know, every nine-year-old boy wants a dog. And then uh, they all lived in like these 15th century castles, you know. And I thought, that's I totally want that. So I'm two for three on this one. Down the boxes, right? Were your yeah. parents winemakers? No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, my, my father was a Presbyterian minister and a theology professor, and my mother was a sixth-grade teacher. Fantastic. Wow, that's great. And you grew up in Northern Cal? In Oregon, originally. Born in Oregon, Eugene. Wow, cool. And uh, so, you know, how did you start to become a winemaker? Where did it start? I mean, I went straight from high school to UC Davis, studied, uh, studied enology there, and uh, went on to, to do a master's degree at the University of Burgundy in, in viticulture. Uh, I had a friend at, that was the vineyard manager at Cheval Blanc that said, if you know how to grow Pinot Noir, yes. then you'll know how to grow anything. And so I decided to focus my viticulture on Pinot Noir so I would know how to grow anything. And um, I got my first job in the wine industry was with Newton Vineyards. And it turned out to be the most fortunate position because the Newtons were loaded. I mean, they were incredibly rich. And they had not only an incredible winemaker in John Kongsgaard, but also uh, consulting winemakers from around the world. We had for the white wines, Dominique Lafont, for the uh, red wines, Michel Roland. And... Um, my French was pretty good. John's was not so good. So I did a lot of translation work. Yeah. And, uh, and I got to know Michelle very well. Um, for, at first, cause John would, uh, throw parties at his house and, uh, Michelle would come over and John would invite a friend of his and he would bring all of these incredible wines. And, uh, you know, Michelle was tasting wines that he was not able to taste in Bordeaux here in California because there were so many great collectors here. And uh, then I started cooking for him, got to know him very well, and I asked him one day if he could find a job for me in France. You know, I wanted to be back in France. And I was thinking, you know, it's going to be a seller job. I'm probably not going to get paid for it, but at least I'll, you know, my French will get up to snuff and... uh and, and I'll be living there and, and learning. Sure. And the next thing I know, he calls me up and says, I have the perfect job for you. <laughs> and uh, it's a, I don't know, it's the winemaking job at uh, Chateau Trollamondeau until I roll through the gates of Trollamondeau. So I'm uh, 26 years old. I, you know, barely know anything about making wine. And suddenly I'm the winemaker at, one of the most prestigious <laughs> chateau in, in Santa Emilion, you know. Uh, You're the American. They're all waiting for you. Like, oh, okay, yeah, that's great. The only American ever to do that. And, uh, I mean, it's crazy, you know. How did it go? Pressure. Uh, I mean, good, good and bad, you know. I learned so much. Uh, I learned... I, I just, for the next six and a half years, I just focused on nothing else but making wine to the detriment of 
everything in my life. Right. And uh, I mean, it was stressful. It was really right. stressful and intense and just like overload of information. I was, I was just thinking about this today because, you know, it's the middle of the 90s in Saint-Emilion, and I remember seeing Jean-Guillaume Prats, you know, from uh, Coast-Estronel. Coast he was the director of Coast-Estronel at the time. And he won some fancy pants award from the Wine Spectator. And he was giving a talk about the, this wine that won the fancy pants award from the Spectator. And they asked him what his biggest, what the biggest influence on his winemaking was. And he said, you know, being on the right bank in Bordeaux in the 90s, the, you know, everything technological, everything viticultural, everything uh, cutting edge was happening in this one place. And all of these people were doing it. And uh, I mean, it was like the center of the world. It was like being Leonardo da Vinci in Florence and, you know, at the, at the Renaissance. And so it was an amazing period to just gather knowledge. And uh, my mother missed me desperately. And uh, she saw a classified ad in the San Francisco Chronicle and sent my resume in without my permission to this uh, blind ad. And the ad said, uh, looking for a winemaker with an enology degree that speaks uh, French, Spanish, and Italian uh, to run overseas wine operation. And so I, I had no idea my mother sent this resume in until she told me. And then I got a call from these people at Behringer and it seemed like a it seemed like a fun job that I would be working, running, uh, working, uh, consulting really on three operations in South America, two in Chile and one in Argentina, uh, three projects in Italy, one in Colio, in Friuli, one in uh, Gattinara, northern Piemonte, and you know, 11th century Castello in Tuscany. And uh, I jumped at it. I thought it would be super fun to uh, come back from Santa Million with all this knowledge and fly fly around the world wow. making wine. I thought That's it was amazing. would be interesting, and that was great too uh, because you know having come from Santa Million where I I had the ear of uh, or the the consulting of Michel Rolland, uh and moving to this this project, I got to work with. Uh, with uh, Jean-Louis Mandreau, who was the winemaker at Chateau Latour, and work with André Porcheret, who was the winemaker for the Hospice de Bonne and winemaker for Domaine Loire and consultant for DRC. And I mean, it was fabulous. I mean, great. and more learning and right. and tra just traveling around the world. I still think I have frequent flyer points from this <laughs> job. So when did you stop doing that? So, uh, Foster's bought uh, Behringer in uh, 2000, and I lost my uh, Castello in Tuscany, Castello de Gabbiano. I lost it in Tuscany, and uh, because somebody in higher up in Australia wanted to take it over, and so they felt sorry for me and gave me Saint Clement in Napa to run, along with all this other stuff I was already doing. I, I don't know why. They could have just given me a raise; I would have been happy with that. 
But uh, so I found myself back in Napa in 2001 working on this St. Clement project. Did that until 2003, discovered a lot of wonderful growers and sort of found my passion for Napa again. And then uh, went to work for Quintessa. Right. And so then, I was at Quintessa last year. So this is, it's funny. So how I know you is through Blackbird. Yeah. Because at a time I was applying for a job in Massachusetts and they had Blackbird. And I, I looked you up and I was like, wow, this guy's really cool. I really want to work for you. I didn't end up working for that company. I ended up working for a bunch of small, small boutique wine companies in Boston. Um, but that's how I, I got to know you, who you were. And then I was in Quintessa last year uh, and met Carlos. Is it Carlos, the gentleman from Chile? Uh, Rodrigo. Rodrigo, that's who it is. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, so tell me about Quintessa. Uh, so Quintessa was great. 2004, I, I'm, I arrived at Quintessa and uh, the best part about it was we bought the bought our property on Mount Vitor in 2004, and uh, got to work with the Huneus family, which was interesting. Yeah, interesting property, different wine than than I was doing. It was fun. So we did a I converted Le Tour Fijac in in Saint-Emilion to biodynamics, and it was we did converted the full property at Quintessa to biodynamics at that time. And that's when I became sort of disillusioned with biodynamics. I know and we had this conversation, but where did you learn about how, where did you learn about biodynamics? That's what I want to. Did you learn in oh, France? Uh, Francois Boucher in uh, in the Loire Valley. Uh, he was a consultant for DRC, and he came uh, he came to the Tour Fijac, and he was our biodynamic consultant there. Okay, very good. And what is your take on biodynamics? Tell me. Um. I mean, I don't, I think we're looking at a different sort of set of ideas in California than what uh, Steiner was focused on. You know, he really had a focus on a middle European idea of, of crops. And uh, I think with global warming and in California in general, you have a different set of ideas. You know, we're not trying to ripen things. We're not trying to move along ripening we're not trying to bring heat the vine um, isn't struggling to bring a lot of vigor lots of sunshine and it's like ripening really quick yeah. and, and uh, i mean we have lots of native plants in california that we can use as biodynamic preps my belief was that you know we have issues in california that are different than middle europe let's use the plants that we have here to as biodynamic preps it's kind of like your version of biodynamics, but just more catered to your local environment. Yeah, I mean, the thing I love about Steiner is the, you know, closed farm system, biodiversity. Uh, I mean, all those things are excellent ideas and fundamental in agriculture. Uh, it's become a little too religious, you know. I, I mean, I think people are... I think he was, he was way more religious than anybody really realizes, and people have taken his teachings and put them into practical form. But I don't think that people understand how it was really more of a religion to him. You know what yeah, I mean? the anthropophysy. Anthropoph <laughs> yeah, I just think he's pretty amazing. But um, I, we were talking about this. So there's a there's an institute down south called the Josephine Porter Institute, and I believe that's the biodynamic institute. It's a guy named Graham Courtney, who yeah. uh, big Steiner guy. Yeah. I mean, I love Steiner because he he 
provoked so many ideas for me and uh and he spoke on so many different subjects i mean there's only a half a page in the book agriculture you know which is just from his lectures that's about grapevines and there's so much so much about so many other things and so much observation and it really made me think that the thing that makes the biggest difference in a vineyard is observation of course yeah you know being in your vines and are you using bees at all anywhere we, I have a, um, I have a guy that runs a small organic honey operation that uh, stacks his bees at my property, and we have, I mean, we have so many flowers up there. It's crazy. It's the perfect place to make honey. Absolutely, and so, so from um, Quintessa, you then went to. Uh, from Quintessa, two thousand seven, I started to consulting, and we started making pot wine. Okay. But yeah, you're also so making wine for other people, right? You were consulting with a bunch of different people. Yeah, I mean, Quintessa being my first client. You know, I started in 2007. We had Quintessa, Fisher Vineyards, uh, Seven Stones, and Blackbird that all came on board in that in that year. Are your wines being sold in Maine and the, pot, the Pots wines? Are they being sold here? Pot wine is only direct. Ah, uh, Pretty much, and then we have, yeah. yeah, and then we have uh, a few restaurants here and there that we uh, we like to have the wines in, sure. and then a couple of wine shops that we know people at. So uh, it's pretty small production. We're yeah. we're about uh, fifteen hundred cases of wine, so it's pretty limited production. So, what is and your the, favorite wine? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> I, mean, I love I love Cabernet Franc. I'm a real Cabernet Franc lover. Mm-hmm. I love I've loved that variety all my life. You know, we worked with it at Newton, we worked with it at Trollamondeau, we worked with it on sixty year old vines at La Tour Fijac, right across from Cheval Blanc. I mean it's it's in my blood. I love Cabernet Franc. Yeah. And, and we make growing make, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of it. I make uh, two wines uh, off of our property. Uh, one's 100% Cabernet Franc. It's called Agnès Sorel, and it's um, natural wine. It's no nothing added into it. No sulfur. No additives. Just grapes. Uh, and then I make a wine called Space and Time. That's a Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot blend. Ooh, nice. So both. You know, off of the property, organically grown, happy vines with a happy view. There you go. And lots of sunshine. Now it is. So um, you are producing, the the wines you're producing now are organic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And is that across the board with all the properties that you're working with? I have, yeah, now it's across the board with all the properties that we're working with. Good, good. And then... You know, what's what's going on in Napa? I mean, I was there like a year ago, but everything changes so quickly. I mean, I was at Silverado one day and like I walked out the door and Frank Family Wines, uh, Frank Family Wines uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, bought them. So everything changes. So what else is happening in Napa? Well, there's certainly been a lot of uh, a lot of places sold recently. I mean, Schaefer, you know, F- Flora Springs. Uh, sure. You know, a lot of so, changes of hands. Do you think so it has many, to do with the economy? So or? 
Seven Stones just recently changed hands too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we're seeing seeing more French groups coming in. LVMH has bought a lot of properties recently. Colgan and so on. Hmm. Well, that's good. Do you get back to France very often? I try to every year. We I usually go out for barrels to select barrels mm-hmm. for the few barrels we get. And you uh, have a special I like to I like to get influenced by you know. There's a lot of good wine out there. It's fun to go taste with friends and try new things. And I think there you know people are creative in France. They're doing a lot of good things with wine. Sure. Sure. No, absolutely. They know where they can because there's certain parts of France where they kind of can't. I mean, they're only restricted as to what they can grow and whatnot. But I find that in southern France, they have a little bit more freedom uh, in Languedoc, places like that, where they don't, you know, they don't have to grow five grapes or whatnot. And so, you know, there's a little bit more experimentation and kind of interesting things happening. Um, So I asked everybody this question, what do you love? (laughs) What do I love in terms of wine? In general. <laughs> uh, well, I love I love to surf. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you go surfing? Uh, what? Where do you go surfing? Uh, well, just on the coast out here. Bolinas? Yeah, usually Bolinas. Yeah. Like That's Milan, funny. I used to live there. in California, and when I lived there, I lived um, East Bay. So uh, the first time I was in uh, Walnut Creek, and then I ended up in Danville. And then the last time I was there was San Ramon. So I kind of went down the block. Um, but I, and I, at the time I was working at a winery in, um, in Livermore. Uh, but I was there very, very briefly. And then I had to come back to Maine. But uh, I have a really good friend from, uh, who manages the Black Hawk Country Club. You know where that uh-huh. is? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, he brought us to Bolinas when we were younger. So it's the place that's on the highway that nobody really wants anybody to go to. So they take the sign down every year. Yeah, well, you're you're gonna have to take your podcast down if they get you. Yeah. <laughs> the the Bolinas Border Patrol. Takes. Yeah. <laughs> they just don't want the tourists there. But okay, yeah. that's good. That's great. It's funny because we were living in LA last year, so we used to go surfing in Malibu and Venice along the. But I got to tell you, the ocean wasn't very clean there. I bet you it's a lot cleaner in NorCal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a lot sharkier though. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, because there was actually somebody who was attacked by a shark um, somewhere in near Lompoc or something like that last year. Oh, so yeah, we had a guy that, where you are. Uh, yeah, we had a guy where we were here that was at Salmon Creek that wow. got attacked. But yeah, you gotta be careful. Yeah, try not to sure. think about it. <laughs> you love to surf and you love to make wine, which is great. So um, I asked all of my guests to pick a song. Did you happen to pick one? Oh, I totally forgot about picking a song. <laughs> You're going to have to pick one now, then. Uh, 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 you Only Live Twice. You Only Live Twice. You Only Live Twice. Who wrote this song? Uh, who is it? It's... Um, it no, it's not. My wife's trying to tell me what it is, but it's not. Uh, who is it? Yeah, I'll find it. <laughs> Okay, so uh, if people want to buy your wine, where will they find it? Hotwine.com. Okay. And if yeah. people want to find you on Instagram, how will they find you? Uh, I think it's Aaron underscore pot. Aaron underscore pot, but Potwine doesn't have an Instagram, so they'll find you. Yes. Correct. And uh, what do you expect from your harvest this year? Uh, so far, it's a little bit late, so it should be good. 
I mean, what I'm really looking forward to is we've been working with uh, Legere Meredith fruit. I don't know if you know Carol Meredith, who's the famous geneticist that found all the origins of the grape varieties, but uh, her and her husband have this wonderful property next door to ours, and they've decided to give us the grapes from the property. And so last year we started making Syrah uh, Zinfandel that they call Tribadrag, and Malbec, and then a Savoie variety called Mondus. Yeah, it's a whole new world for me, and I'm loving the Syrah. is unbelievable. I mean, just another level of Syrah. Wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and hopefully I can taste them soon. So listen, thank you very much, and I'm going to play your song for you now. But have a great day. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Bye. you. Bye. Bye.